Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is a good friend of mine, Eric Termund, and we are going to dive into some pretty epic topics. We're going to jam on entrepreneurship. We're going to talk about leadership. We're going to talk about the future of technology in the workplace, uh, team dynamics. We, we even talk a little bit about language, which is really interesting towards the very end and how language shapes our reality, but how language also impacts our leadership, how language also impacts uh, how we deal with people, whether it's in our relationship, in the work environment, and how ultimately... The, how uh, this whole conversation is really in some way about shaping and defining our own versions of success and how in our mainstream culture, we are so inundated with the idea of pursuing how other people have gotten to success because it really seems like an anomaly. So uh, Eric is on a mission to change the way we talk about work and get fulfillment from it. He's a best-selling author, speaker, and entrepreneur, and he's the co-founder of Now Innovations and lead content strategist for True Calling Canada. Eric has been featured in Forbes Inc., Thrive Global, The Huffington Post, and many other media platforms. In 2015, Eric was recognized as a top 100 emerging innovators under 35 globally by American Express. Eric sat as Community Integration Chair for Global Shapers Calgary, a community that functions under the World Economic Forum. He is the former Canadian G20 YEA delegate representing Canada in Sydney in 2014 and is currently signed by the National Speakers Bureau and travels the world talking about the future of work and multiple generations in the workplace. So he has got some pretty serious credentials when it comes to uh, when it comes to work, when it comes to entrepreneurship. He has spoken at some incredible uh, companies. He's spoken at Coca Cola. He's you know done the whole circuit. Obviously, the, you know uh, was a G twenty delegate. So he's got some pretty great experience and, and has been fortunate enough to uh, really have some some face to face time with some of the biggest brands in the world. He's got a lot of really incredible insight and and recently. Uh, just released a book last year, I believe, uh, called Rethink Work, which is pretty amazing. We don't really dive too much into that uh, in here, but it's definitely worth a read if you are you know, in the workspace, <laughs> if you're a professional. Uh, so just a quick reminder to all the guys out there, head on over to the Man Talks community on Facebook. Join the conversation there. There's, there's you know, 3,200 plus men from around the world that are that are in that community. And we've got some great conversations going about masculinity about business, entrepreneurship, mindset, purpose, you name it, we dive into it. Uh, and don't forget to check out the Alliance. You can go to mantalks.com and just check out the Alliance on there. It is a four-month program that I will personally be leading with a small group of men. It's starting very soon. Uh, so check that out. And don't forget to man it forward. Thank you so much to everybody who has been sharing the podcast lately. It's been incredible to see uh, the, the shares on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you so much for tagging me in them. Uh, so without further ado, I would like to welcome my good friend, Eric Termund. Great to be here, Connor. Thanks for having me. This is this has been a long time coming, man. We kept like running into each other 
and uh, trying to trying to schedule this. And I think both of our travel schedules have been kind of hectic. So it's it's great to have you on here finally. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad, man. I mean, like you said, it's been uh, it's been a few tries, but I think that persistence and here we are today. I think it'll pay off. Yeah, man. All right. So let's let's dive in the 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 classic Connor question, which is tell us, tell the listeners and myself a story, a defining moment about a story that is that has made you who you are today. Um, sure. Uh, one, of, I got into the human resources space and the consulting side of things, and that has now led to the book uh, that I wrote, Rethink Work, and a lot of the speaking that I've been doing on stages, sort of across North America and and the world, really. And the reason why this human resources sort of topic came to be is because of a personal struggle, and I thought oh, I think a lot of entrepreneurial endeavors are born from you know, some sort of life event or some sort of relatable component that we all have to whatever it is that we're doing. Uh, when I was graduating from university, my grades weren't all well, they were what they were supposed to be. I was by no means a 4.0 student. I wasn't straight A's across the board. And as a result, it was really difficult to get into any of the careers that, that I thought was going to be sort of my dream job. I wanted to have a white collar on. I wanted to wear a tie. I wanted to carry a briefcase. I wanted to kind of be that boardroom warrior <laughs> on the 35th floor that worked for a big consulting company. Because of grades or because of my approach to finding a job uh, or just the inability to do the right things at the right time uh, ultimately didn't even allow me to have the interviews that I needed to get the job, let alone to get the job at all. So I wasn't really particular on what company specifically. It was more around that lifestyle. And, and because the, that opportunity wasn't there, had to, we had to be creative. And it sort of led us to believe or led us to realize and do research and find out that, you know, on average, people are applying to 60 or 70 different jobs at a time. And a recruiter is looking at a resume for 6.25 seconds per one in 50 will lead to an interview. Maybe one in 10 will lead to a job again. And so we thought, hey, you know what? Maybe the way that we're articulating culture, values, fit, alignment, the experience of the job rather than just the skills and requirements to do it is a bit broken. And maybe there's an opportunity for us to fix it. Maybe there's a way for us to change how we talk about work in general, and also how we can define and understand who we are, and how we can get the most of that thing we do more than anything else in the day, which of course is, is work. So the defining moment was not getting that dream job over and over and over and over again, and ultimately trying to come at how to fix it. And not just for ourselves, but for for anyone else who wants to find that dream job a little bit earlier. Amazing, man! That's that's a that's a great story, and I love how it just came out of that journey of you failing. I, I like to say that I failed my way to purpose. You know, finding finding my purpose in life, like I just failed my way there. And it sounds like in in some ways you did as well. It's like you kept going down this path and not having success, and then you know there's a deviation at some point that you took that then led you to what you're doing now, which. I mean, I've I've sort of been watching your what I would say from the outside is a meteoric rise. Like you've just been really been taking off and and uh, doing some really really cool stuff. So um, so that that's great to hear. Just out of curiosity, like take us back into what led you to wanting to be a boardroom warrior? Like what was little Eric like that, that he, sure. because I don't know many guys that were like, Oh man, like I just want to wear a suit and tie and have the briefcase and go into the office office and crush the corporate life every single day. So, so take yeah. us through like what, what led you to wanting to go down that path in the, path in the first place? Yeah. I mean, 
I feel with man talks, we get a little bit more personal, a little bit more vulnerable. So, so I'll do just that too. I'm not going to give sort of the, the cookie awesome. cutter answer. The, the honest truth, I think, uh, like most of us, is, is we want to, to please our parents. I was very lucky in the house that I grew up in. You know, my parents were endlessly supportive. They uh, were very loving uh, and they allowed me the opportunities that ultimately shaped who I am today. Now, that didn't mean that I didn't find it very difficult to to please my dad. My mom was very good at being affectionate, uh, patting me on the back when I felt I needed it or felt I deserved it. And my dad had a different way of showing his uh, his love and his appreciation. And it was there. I just there's a it took me a long time to see it. And so when I looked at success, at a societal definition of success, at least at the time, it was, you know, the American dream. It was the, the house, the white picket fence. It was a car. It was a, it was a, a wife. It was a son and a daughter. And then if you exaggerate that, it was, you know, a helicopter. It was a Ferrari. It was a big house. And, I, and the way that I saw that, because I didn't have any interest in being a doctor or, or a lawyer, is that, you know, I see the people that were driving those cars or that were in those houses wore a suit and a tie. And I thought that they uh, were big business people. And entrepreneurship, you know, even 10 years ago, wasn't near as, near as sexy as it is today. And so I thought, okay, well, if that's what it's going to take, then that's what I want to be because I want to show my dad that I can be successful too. And that's sort of what kicked that off. Nice. Yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to that, you know, that wanting on some level to to just like appease and have their parents be proud of them. Like even even to this day, I think like my parents, I, I had to go through that. And I think that my parents now still wonder like, what the hell does he actually do? You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like he runs this man talks thing. Like I think sometimes like, how does right. he survive? Like, what is he actually doing? Cause I'm not really too sure. Like he's got this podcast thing. So yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, but I, right. I definitely relate, you know, like I went down the path of, oddly enough, like becoming an opera singer to try and get that approval. And so, so mm-hmm. I think a lot of people can get, definitely relate to that. So how did you start to cultivate and really find like your own personal voice, your own personal entrepreneurial voice? Uh, like how did, how did that start to come about once the, the sort of it, failures happened over and over again? Uh, how did you start to cultivate that entrepreneurial voice of yours? Well, it's funny, like you said, you know, as the failures happen, I mean, they happen this morning and they're going to happen this afternoon and they're going to happen next week and they're going to happen next month. And so I think I've, I've come to the realization that life doesn't get any easier. You kind of just get better at it. <laughs> and so we'll continue to fail. We'll continue to, to trip, but we'll almost kind of expect it now, especially if that's the life that we want to, to lead as an entrepreneur is, is failure is kind of built in. Uh, and I think that this entrepreneurial appetite started to just get stronger and stronger when you know we're in it and an entrepreneurship i found is it has highs that i cannot describe and lows that i also cannot describe and and i've almost been become kind of a, addicted to that cycle right now for example i'm just i'm working with a couple of clients speaking probably 50 times this year uh, and just signed up late last year to run a half ironman this summer and I feel that the more I put on this plate, the more difficult it becomes and the more fun I'm having at the same time. And so, you know, the, the more that's on my plate, you know, more, the more fun I have trying to, to, to take it down, really. And so this is really started from the proposals that we didn't get 
you know, the clients that we thought mm. we were going to work with that we didn't actually land. Uh, and that sort of allowed us to say, okay, well, why didn't this work? How can we get this next time? What story can we tell better? And it's, it's just almost become this big, this big game of how to improve. And there's no finish line. It never ends. And we just have so much fun just running the race and playing the game along the way. Yeah, I, I like that, man. I, I really appreciate the insight of like the highs and the lows and almost becoming like addicted to that, you know, because it, it, it really is true. Like there's just going to be so many failures. And I think one of the interesting things that, that, you know, you and I talked about it before we, you know, before we hit record and before we sort of jumped on here. And I think we've talked about this in the past before is this concept of, you know, everybody kind of knows how to fail. Like we see so much failure out in the world and we, we see so much failure on in our own life. Not that we become numb to it, but we know how to fail. You know, like I know how to fail. I know the fastest way to fail is, you know, not doing what I know I need to do, but we all know how to do that. And success seems to be like this. It seems to be the counterintuitive piece. It seems to be the piece that we all have to like really learn how to do in a lot of ways. And everybody's looking for the quick fix to success and like wanting success to almost uh, like come packaged up in this fancy little box with a bow on top that will teach us exactly mm -hmm. how to do that. And, and I know you've talked about this before. So maybe can we just start with why is it such an inherent part of human nature to to want success to come packaged up for us? Like, why do we want that? Because it's easy, right? <laughs> I mean, I think, I think that's it though. If it looked and sounded and felt and tasted and smelled a certain way, we would all do it, mm -hmm. right? We would all do it. The problem is, I think, is that we don't understand ourselves well enough to know how to differentiate what we can read in a magazine to apply to us personally. Because what's happened, I think, and I can speak for myself, obviously using this consulting example, you know, white collar example as, as, as my case study, is I thought to be successful, that's, that's what I had to be. So I, I tried to conform to what society thought, nah, maybe not conform, maybe adapt to what I thought society would label me as to be successful so that I could realize success personally. Now, what I've come to realize is, is success looks different for every person who experiences it. So anytime we read the here's 10 things you know, Richard Branson does before he makes breakfast, <laughs> it's like, okay, awesome. But I don't necessarily want to get up at four. You know, success to me doesn't look and feel like that. Maybe it means I get up at six and I'm still ahead of the curve by an hour. Maybe it means, you know, there's a lot of people who are better working at night or even late at night or early, early in the morning. And, and, that, and that's fine. And so what I would challenge everyone to do is to, is to define success on their own terms and see sort of what the outcome of that life looks like. I mean, I, I come from small town Cranbrook, British Columbia, interior BC. And I can tell you right now, generally speaking, success looks a lot different than it does on 28th Ave in, 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 in Manhattan, right, where, where you are. And that's so okay. And it wasn't until I realized that, that I realized the possibilities of what success can look like are so limitless that the path to get there is too. And I'm starting to realize that unless I can carve my own path, I'll never truly realize what it means to be successful. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I was going to ask is like, do you feel like at some point, everybody on the path to success, people that 
people that end up having, you know, what we would sort of not, not traditional success from a financial standpoint, but success from a fulfillment standpoint. Do you think that at some point everybody has to deviate away from the, the people that they sort of idolize and, and are learning from and, and perceive as their mentors and, and start to have to carve out their own path? I. I think so. Yeah. In fact, I would encourage that because I think the better we can understand ourselves, the better we can define what that path is going to look like. And the thing is, is like the people that are mentors or our parents or our teachers or our family and friends, they have nothing, obviously, but the best intentions for us, right? But nobody knows ourselves better than we do if we truly, truly dig deep and, and sort of navigate what that looks like. And I think as soon as we can do that, that's when the potential really, really arises. There's a quote, actually, that I found it from... I, I'm not sure if you follow Founder Magazine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I thought, I, I thought they've, they've always got some great stuff. But I, I remember screenshotting this and I just quickly looked it up. He said, it says, if you end up with a boring, miserable life because you listen to your mom, your dad, your teacher, your priest, and some guy on television telling you to do your shit, then you deserve it. <laughs> That's awesome, man. And if I said that on my own, I'd probably get in trouble. But because it's that quote... Cool- yeah, then it's, then it's a little bit more acceptable. Well, I, I think the interesting thing is, is that like this concept, this, this sort of like essence of what we're talking about, I think this is what has made somebody like Tim Ferriss have such a huge appeal, right? Because here's a guy who, right. you know, had some success before he was, you know, Tim Ferriss, the, the sort of public figure. But how he really got famous, if you look at it, is by testing and implementing and starting to take apart these things that we've that we've sort of bought into as this is what makes somebody successful or this is what optimizes your sleep or this is what optimizes you know you know weight loss or like whatever and really starting to question like what mm-hmm. works for him personally and that pursuit is what garnered him really like mainstream attention because here was this guy that was like mm-hmm really self-testing, self-authoring in in this sort of quintessential pursuit of self-understanding. And everybody sort of jumped on this bandwagon, I think because, and you know, initially they were like, oh yeah, four-hour work week, that sounds amazing. But the, the essence of it is something mm-hmm. different. It's sort of like this psychological drive and yearning to seek self-understanding. And so where where can we start? Like, let's just say that that people are starting to to dive into this on their own. Like some of our listeners are like really starting to dive into this on their own. Where do you feel like we can start with, with self-understanding and self-awareness? Two places. Uh, number one is wherever you're feeling you're competing with somebody else. <laughs> Um, because I feel that the biggest competition and perhaps the only competition that we really have is against ourselves. Right? How do we be a better version of ourselves today than we were yesterday? Because if I'm trying to compete against you, for example, or if I'm trying to compete against Tim Ferriss, or I'm, I'm trying to compete against Gary Vaynerchuk, what I'm trying, I'm, I'm comparing apples and oranges, right? I mean, Gary, for example, will be on stages all over the place. He'll be talking about you know hustle, about you know just drive, about passion, about all of these things that you need to be a successful entrepreneur. And what I've come to realize is that I'm actually talking a lot about those same principles and but using different words right so as long as i can compare myself to, to myself and not necessarily to gary because we're talking to different people living vastly different lives uh, only then will i start to realize what it means to be successful on my terms and the second thing i would say is where we're experiencing most resistance 
right? So if we're experiencing resistance on a job that we're doing, some sort of task or direction that we're taking, some sort of lifestyle component, you know, say, say you're watching your fourth episode of whatever Netflix show and you're starting to feel a little bit guilty. I wonder, you know, are we watching Game of Thrones so we can talk about it tomorrow? Or is it something that we can really, really sink our teeth into and because we need a bit of a break and because we need that to feel fulfilled again? And so the two things I would say is, is number one, if we're competing against somebody else, especially someone who's not in our industry, uh, that's not going to help us find individual success. And number two is if we're really resisting something even on our own path and we're not really considering it to be competitive or comparative, uh, and we need to, to fix that too, I think that resistance will start to allow us to help identify what might be a better alternative. Mm, yeah, man, that's that's awesome. And it, it's interesting because I think the more it's easy to get caught up sometimes in like these, the, the people that make a lot of noise, you know, like Gary, like Gary makes a lot of noise. He puts out, a, you know, just like a shit ton of content and his mm -hmm. message is, is very like palpable for a lot of people. I mean, some people hate him and some people can't stand mm -hmm. him and, and that's, that's fine. But so many people, his message just resonates with them and, and it's simple. He's not like, you know, talking quantum physics. It's a very simple message that he, that he has but it's so direct. And so I think the interesting thing is you're talking about comparison or, or co competition against these people. How do we start to, you know, really shift away from that? You're talking about competing against ourselves or, or, or challenging and, and comparing against ourselves. How do we start to set up maybe like processes or uh, a way of being that allows that to happen in a world where it, we are like inundated with other people's messages? Uh, in my case, I just unfollowed all of these people and I actually try to keep them off my radar and not because I don't think I can't learn from them or anything else. Or if there's something that I want to learn specifically, or I want to look at how they're delivering a message or something like that, then I'll, I'll, I'll seek it out. If I want to, to, you know, check in on Tim Ferriss and kind of see what's going on, that's great. But what I found is I had this sort of internal anxiety developing when all of these people who, again from the outside look like they're on this meteoric rise, Connor Beaton included. Uh, I found like I was comparing myself to them so much that that feeling was taking over more than my ability to be productive on my own path was. And so I thought the more that I can minimize noise and minimize distractions, this includes turning vibrate and ring off on my cell phone. This includes deleting Facebook and Snapchat off my cell phone. This includes turning off all notifications for any social media that I even have left off completely so that when I open my phone, it's it's used as a tool and not a crutch, uh, that all of a sudden I'm really curating the information that's in front of me and being able to act to it accordingly. Yeah, awesome. Man. I mean, I, one of the things, I've tried some similar stuff as well. And I think one of the biggest things is like really understanding the lesson that you can learn from other people and and mm -hmm. maybe like how to apply it but how to to notice like where you want to replicate it because i see a lot of people trying to like replicate the gary v's and the richard mm -hmm. branson's and you know even even from company level like people will start a business and be like oh yeah we're the next apple of x or we're the next airbnb of x <laughs> apple of Uber of right 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 <laughs> and it's just like but maybe you don't want to be like, obviously, it's there's an understanding that comes along with that, right? And and that's that's fine. 
But the reality is, is like creating your own voice and like really setting yourself apart from somebody else is so inherently important. And if you really look at the success of, of some of those people, that's how they've gotten to where they've gotten, right? Is sort of like putting on the horse blinders to other people's messages yeah. and narratives, cultivating and curating their own, and then just like blasting those out in the world and being extraordinarily unapologetic about it. Man, like you could not have said it better. It's just that that keen level of introspection and being so aware of who we are as individuals and what our, you know, I've heard the word superpower being thrown around a lot lately, like what our superpower is and how we can deliver it. I mean, like I said, I'm just going to rip on a tangent into this culture side of things. But, you know, we, we built a tool essentially a few years back that, that quantifies culture within an organization, right? And, and what that allows us to do is to put numbers behind experience. So how diverse, how inclusive, what's the communication like, what sustainability programs are, how often do you meet your superior, what time do you get to work, what time do you leave? We're going to put numbers behind all these things. And that differentiates one company from the other. Because what we're hearing so often, I think we can agree, is how do we have that Google or how do we have that Netflix or how do we have that Facebook workplace culture? And the truth is, is that we don't want it, right? Because the people who would want to work there are already applying there. You know, and if you're a credit union, you don't want to be like a big bank. If you're a small accounting shop, you don't want to be like one of the big four. And what I've come to realize is this analogy, if I'm bringing it back to our conversation, is the exact same that we're doing with people, right? The truth is, is like Connor doesn't want to be Tim Ferriss. I, like Eric doesn't want to be Gary Vaynerchuk. That doesn't mean we can't learn from some of their great, great best practices. But then unless we apply them to ourselves and make them unique in our own way, we're just going to be, uh, it's just going to be an echo chamber, right? We're just going to be a parrot repeating whatever it is that they say. And we'll never, we'll never, never differentiate ourselves in that case. And so what I've often said to the companies that I'm working with is any differentiator, anything that's not like the others, this is your competitive advantage. This is what sets you apart. This is what makes you who you are. And I think that we as people have to start to think of the same thing. Because when I got on, on LinkedIn, for example, I started writing a bunch of articles and I didn't have a target in mind. It was just kind of like, okay, let's see where this sticks. And what I realized is when you try and be everything to everyone, you all of a sudden become nothing to anyone, right? And so even if you think your voice is different, even if you think that it's not Gary or Tim or Connor or whoever it is, that's actually where your market's going to emerge from. Because all these people that are that are really honed into Connor, Tim or, or, or Gary, they're taken, essentially. And, and that market isn't the one that you know a guy like me is going to be speaking to. And that's okay. And it's going to take some time. But the thing that people need to know is that an overnight success takes a thousand days. And unless we can really dedicate ourselves to the long haul, uh, we're not going to make it anyway. So maybe there's something to be said about sort of strapping in and, and getting comfortable for, for at least a few years before really uh, watching that market emerge. Yeah, then there's there's like a great. There's a great Instagram post for you right there. Is that overnight success? <laughs> the the overnight success takes takes a thousand days. I think that's so right. true and so powerful. And I, I would probably add like the the cultivation of our personal message takes a, you know a thousand days. Like it really does take a long Absolutely. time, especially differentiating. And this is so true whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you are a professional, whether you're working in a large corporation, or you're like in a mom and pop consulting organization, like. 
being able to find your own identity within that company, within that organization, or being able to really distinguish your brand identity is incredibly challenging because you have to be able to dig into what is my personal message. And like, I think back to my my own journey on this, and man, it took a long time. You know, like it took years right. to even have a remote clue about what my distinct <laughs> message was and who I was actually talking to, because it was very much the same thing. It was like, oh, I'm just going to put this out. I want to help guys, you know, right. and like it, that, that was right. the generic. It was just like, oh, I just want to help men. But what I didn't realize mm-hmm. is that there was a very specific subset of guys that I was trying to support. And there was very certain areas that I was that I was wanting to and I felt called to to work with them on. And that took just like years of putting out the the content and doing the events and, you know, speaking my own message. And even now, like it's still a huge process of of curating that message for those for those guys and, and for those people. And so yeah, man, I mean that's just it'll never stop either, right? And 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 as soon as it as soon as it stops for you, I think you're stop you you'll stop doing your job. Really, or as soon as you're lacking interest in that, I'm curious though. How's your how has your message evolved? How has Band Talks evolved? If you were to sort of summarize where you were at then and where you're at today, what has been one of the biggest uh, changes in terms of your voice or your message or your audience or or even a takeaway or, or, or you know is there is there anything that really stands out for you? Yeah, I think the biggest part has been really narrowing down on on who we're actually serving. You know, right and and almost like that archetype of of person that we're serving. Because I think in the very beginning, I was like, oh, I want to serve men, but I want to include everybody in the conversation. And the and the problem with that is that the, the message was so diluted that people were like, cool, you know, this is for guys, but I don't really understand necessarily like who's it, who it's for. And the, the clearer that we've gotten on who we're actually serving, it's actually allowed mm-hmm. us to produce better content and the messages are stronger and really honing in on like things like purpose and mindset. Like we're, you know, a lot of the guys that come into our organization and, you know, that listen to the podcasts and, and whatnot, they're, they're really like, they're, they're searching and, and feeling a sense of like lack around purpose. And they're, they're wanting to cultivate a stronger, sharper mindset. And they're really wanting to hone in on their, on their intimate relationships. And so once we got clear on that, it was like, oh yeah, we're, we're not helping like the every man and and we're not helping mm-hmm. the guys that are just like looking to make a shit ton of money and get rich quick like there are organizations mm-hmm. out there that help people do that and that's not what we do so mm-hmm. it really has been interesting because it's almost like instead of taking the shotgun approach which is what we sort of did at the very beginning it's become a much right. more like laser focused this is what we this is where we provide value and that has been a direct reflection when i look back of my personal journey and my personal struggles. I I fundamentally think that people find meaning in starting to overcome their like their personal version of what hell is. You know, like <laughs> like oh, like yeah. our personal version of like what would be the worst thing to have happen in our lives, or or, or like the worst personal things for us to have gone through. When we can start to tackle those problems then that's where we derive like a really deep sense of meaning. Right. And so am I wrong in saying that that the more specific that you got with your target or 
target sounds like you're out to get someone with your <laughs> with your market your people like your guys the the more they start to emerge too because i think that seems so counterintuitive but i've come to realize the total opposite is that the more specific that we can be with our market the more opportunities there are within it yeah i mean i the the facebook community is i think a perfect example of that like we've got you know, 3,200 guys in there now. It's just like a free community. But it's been really interesting to see like... We had we had like a couple hundred guys in there when I started when I just opened it up last year, and there were some okay conversations, but you know for the most part it lacked clarity on what it actually was. And the more clear that we've gotten, the more we've attracted the right type of guy into that community, and the conversations and the quality of those conversations have right. just like skyrocketed. And and the more that people yeah. are like, oh, this is exactly what I'm looking for, and I know that. I know that like Ted's looking for this and John's looking for this and Mark is looking for this. And so I'm going to invite them into the conversation. Um, so yeah, I, mm-hmm. I, I completely agree with you. And the other thing too, I think to get there just for, for anyone who's listening to get to where, where Connor is and to really, uh, we talk, you know, we're talking a lot today about self-awareness. We're talking about being introspective to get to wherever we want to, to, let's just say, define what it means to be successful on a personal level. It's not all, easy either in order to define who we are it's not just like the good we really have to understand what our weaknesses are too we really have to understand what our fears are we really have to understand what makes us uncomfortable because unless we understand both the good and the bad or you know maybe the the stuff we wouldn't be so open to sharing uh we can't overcome it right and i think the more we try and shelter that or more we try and deflect that the harder it is for us to be able to understand who we are and ultimately how to overcome whatever those fears or difficulties mm-hmm. are too. Yeah. And I, you know, a big part of what we're talking about here is, is self-leadership, you know, and you've, I think you've had the opportunity to really go in and, and work with some really cool brands and some really incredible people in so many different industries. And, you know, you've had the opportunity to work with a lot of really exceptional leaders. And I'm curious to get your perspective on what are some of those qualities? What are some of those traits that you have seen exceptional leaders really hone in on and cultivate that might not be so talked about in the mainstream. Uh, empathy <laughs> is probably the first and foremost. It's it's that care to make a difference in people's lives, and it's not selfish. There's no hidden agenda or hidden motive. It's just ha- it's it's those who really care make the biggest difference. Now with, with now innovations, we talk about the now of work, which is kind of a blend between the future of work and, and the legacy of work. So basically that madman era to robots and uh, artificial intelligence and everything in between. When we talk about the now of work and this shift to be really focused on culture and people and bottom line and profit generation and everything in between, it, the, the biggest thing and I could argue the same for you know uh, finding what it means to be successful on a personal level is is a mindset shift. It's a decision first, and I honestly think that whether you're starting a company or you're making this culture shift or you're making a big personal shift, let's just say for example, if you decide that you want to run a half marathon this year, I think the hardest part out of all of that is deciding that that's what you want to do first. And as soon as that mindset shift is made, it's simply execution from there. Uh, but it's being able to commit to something and then see it all the way through 
uh, that's where obviously the results are going to come. But I think the hardest part comes from making that decision and then sticking to it. Mm, yeah, I like that, man. I like that a lot. And then uh, how do you see how do you see leadership in the workplace? And, you know, because you deal a lot with the HR sector and and really like how people work in a team, how people are brought on and, and how culture is built with an organization. And I think this is a valuable lesson that we can that we can all learn. But how do you see that area? How do you see leadership changing? Let's just start with leadership first. How do you see leadership changing now in the next five years? Because I imagine that as some of these technologies enter into the workplace and really start to shift and, you know, people have the opportunity to work from home more and more and, and uh, team dynamics are changing, leadership has to evolve along with that. So how do you see that shifting? Yeah, I think you really actually hit the nail on the head by suggesting technology is I think technology is sort of the crux of everything when it comes to culture right now. I mean, if we were to look, we might need another 45 minutes for this. No, but if, if you look even 300 years ago, 98% of the workforce was involved in harvesting or agriculture in some degree. Uh, now, 2% of the world is and we're producing more food than we ever have before. So the technological capabilities and abilities have allowed us to do so many different things. Now, when we look between now and 2030, Jack Ma at the World Economic Forum back in January said that 800 million jobs will be replaced by robotics. I mean, these harvesting, these agriculture jobs were replaced Damn. too by sprinklers, irrigation systems and everything else. I mean, all of these jobs, regardless of where we're at, at some point are going to be replaced. That doesn't mean we're going to be out of work. That doesn't mean we're not going to be doing anything. And so I think the organizations that are going to be doing the best are the ones that can utilize this technology while still maintaining a sense of belonging in the workplace. So if we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for example, which is this triangle that states what people need in order to be fulfilled and essentially alive. So at the base of this, at this hierarchy of this needs triangle uh, is food, shelter, water, right? The thing that we all need to survive. Right after that is a sense of safety. If we have safety, food, shelter, and water, we can all survive just fine. Right after that, though, is a sense of belonging. And we don't really talk about that enough. We're getting into it now a little bit. And the reason we're just getting into that now a little bit is because we're seeing loneliness numbers off the charts. I actually think that we've passed this peak sense of belonging in the workplace and we're sliding down the backside. And the reason for this is technology. And so right now, on average, the average American is spending between three and a half and four hours a day on their cell phones, checking it 85 times a day. They're in front of a screen 10 hours a day. If we just look at the cell phone numbers alone, we're talking 12 years of our lives. Now, if anyone's read a Malcolm Gladwell book, we know that it takes about 10,000 hours to master anything. And so while people often talk about how much the iPhone X costs or what the new Samsung S9 is going to cost, uh, I think we should be talking about how much it costs to be using these devices and what we're missing while we're on them. I'll take that one step further to say that the less face time we have within our organizations, in the homes that we live in, with the friends that we hang out with, the more lonely we'll be. And so back to your question, the leader in the future of work or the now of work that's going to be most effective is the one that realizes the necessity to really focus on bringing people together, having them actually connect on a deeper level and have the sense of belonging. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's so huge, right? Because connection, human connection really, I mean, has always been a, a form of currency. It's something that I talked about last year at the Real Talk Summit. You know, it really is a, it really is a currency. And I think in, in future years, it will become 
an even greater currency as you know people struggle to connect socially not just in the workplace just just in general in every part of their life so so how do we start to leverage is it about leveraging technology in order to create that connection or is it about understanding the impact of technology and and creating spaces and opportunities for connection to happen outside of that technology yeah i think it's the latter uh, i think it's understanding how much your you how, how much is technology a crutch rather than a tool and i think that's a really important distinction to make um because if we rely on technology rather than rather than utilize technology uh, i think we're we're not going to be as well off as we can be and so you know again we're talking about turning off notifications and turning off vibrations and turning off distractions on our phone let me put it this way right now if the phone was in my pocket and we're having we're having our chat right now and i get a vibration that's going off in my pocket I, all of a sudden, I'm not as present to this conversation as I should be. And while there might not be anything important on the other end of that vibration on my phone, it doesn't mean I'm not thinking about it, right? And so I think the more we can eliminate distraction, the more we can eliminate noise, and the, and the more we can sort of set the intention for the conversation that we want to be having, the better off we'll be. And actually, if, if I could, there, I'll share sort of a, a realization that I had just recently, is, is that we've all heard the line, uh, create the world that you want to be a part of. Right. I'm sure we've, we've all heard that. Anyone who's oh, yeah. listening, listening today. What I've come to realize, though, is while, you know, you could have a triple bottom line organization, some sustainable, save the world, build schools, you know, whatever that organization might be. I think that that is included, certainly. And I also think that my world today, when I'm looking at my calendar this morning, is about 10 people big. When you look at the meetings or the phone calls that I've got. Uh, and then I've got, uh, you know, a, a little event tonight, but my world, the people that I'm going to be actually face to face with today is about 10 people. And there are going to be hundreds of faces that I'll walk by and that are be part of this environment that both you and I are a part of. But right now, if we want to create the world that we want to be a part of, all that starts with is that if you don't want the people that you're with to be on their cell phones, well, don't be on your cell phone. If you want to have a deeper, more meaningful conversation, start that conversation. And I think that if our world is 10, about 10 people big each, each day in terms of the people that we interact with, I believe that we can create the world that we, we want to be a part of and watch that ripple effect spread through the communities that we're a part of too. Because if we bring calmness, presence, intention, to each of the conversations that we have, well, by virtue of the way that we act, our world will be full of intention, deep conversations uh, of people who are present, of people who are calm and focused on each other. And I think that that's how we start to make incremental and then exponential. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it reminds me of, uh, I did an interview in the very beginning of the podcast, the Man Talks podcast. It, it was interesting because I interviewed Cal Newport in the very beginning. And he talked about something right. called attention residue. And this idea that, you know, if we're working on a document or we're like, uh, let, let's just say we're doing some writing, you know, like I, I've been working on a book proposal for the last few months and I'm working on the book proposal and I have my notifications turned on and my email goes off or I got a text message 
and I check that text message and then I come back to writing my book proposal, I am now, there's, a, there's an attention, part of my brain is now segmented on focusing in on the book proposal. And there's this residue mm-hmm. of what I just looked at, you know, in the text message, maybe it's from my fiance, or maybe it's from you. And, you know, now my mm-hmm. brain is thinking about that. And so it splits our focus and splits our attention. And I think what's really cool about right. part of what you're talking about is being able to bring our attention and our focus and our presence into everything that we are doing constantly. So, but I think that this becomes the challenge, right, Eric? Because part of mm-hmm. part of our success is now so contingent on our ability to leverage social platforms, to leverage social media, to leverage technology. So, <laughs> so for everybody out there listening, like, how do we then start to find? that that balance between the two where we can still leverage the one without losing without losing ourselves in it i think part of the answer i mean you know we talk about failure we talk about growing where we're at where we're going to be you know this is something that i'm trying to navigate right now so you know take everything well take the whole interview with a grain of salt but uh this this part especially i think where where the answer lies at least my current answer for that because it might evolve is our attachment to the metrics when it comes to social media. I find that if I'm present, I mean, LinkedIn is my platform of choice. That's where my audience is. I don't do much on Twitter or Facebook at all. But if I'm attached to the outcome rather than the process, then I find that the attention residue that that you talk about, that Cal talks about, is stronger. Uh, So where the difference is, is that... I'm not attached to the outcome of what my content of, of what my content yields, I suppose, on LinkedIn. I'm really dedicated to the process of putting it out there. And I think that that's so interesting too, because I'm, I'm, I'm a public speaker first and foremost right now. And ultimately, the number of gigs that I close in the year is not up to me. You know, I can set a goal to close 60 gigs this year, and that's awesome. But what I should probably rather be doing, or what I should be more effectively doing, is setting a goal to more build a a process that's rock solid, right? So how do I have a certain amount of videos or reach outs or testimonials or posts uh, that can then enable that outcome to happen with a greater degree of likelihood? And so with, with social media... I'm not as attached with the outcome of it as I am is the pr- in, into the process. And so there's going to be something that I think I need to do, post a video, post something and, and be there. And the outcome or whatever happens next, I'm not attached to. So then if you and I have a conversation following, I'm not worried about checking for likes and comments because I've done my job. Whatever happens next is out of my control, right? And I think that the same will happen when we talk about utilizing technology or social media in any other way too. But it also happens in goal setting. I'd rather set a goal to be the process and not the outcome. Yeah, man, I think that's so important. I was just like processing some of that there. It's interesting because the the part that stands out to me when I reflect back on my own experience, it's like when I when I focused in on, and I think this is true for a lot of people, like when we focus in on on the outcome and trying to like yield a certain goal, I feel like the product or the blog or, you know, the service that we end up creating somehow becomes diminished because we're so focused in on some result that we want to achieve rather than when we focus in on the actual quality of it and we let go of the outcome. We let go of and and sort of like surrender to how many likes or how many comments or how many times it's going to get shared. When we let go of that, 
then the, then the what we create actually becomes something much more valuable than if it were us focusing on the result. Has that been your experience as well? Well, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. I mean, and and when you people can see it, first of all, people can see when you're hungry for the likes or the comments, or the shares. I mean, I even look back at some of my older stuff. I can see it too. I mean, it's 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 worry. There's a little bit of anxiety. There's just not that a degree of presence that there needs to be, and with the right intention too. And so when we go back to do we get caught up in this? Well, no. I mean, if you're really putting information out there and trying to provide value for, for your people, uh, the process is the start and the end of the job. If you're attached too much to the outcome, then you're always focused on every second after the content is out there too. When truthfully, I think the focus should stop as soon as you press submit or post. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's so true. And the, the funny thing is, is that while we're talking about social media, this is <laughs> this is like... I'm I'm thinking about it. It's like so applicable across the board. You know, like if we have a project at work and we are only focused in on the outcome, we're yielding a very specific result. The work itself, you know, becomes diminished versus when we just focus in mm-hmm. on the work itself. So it, it's it's so interesting. Or even like in a relationship, you know, like you you focus in on some specific result needing to happen in a relationship, and it becomes. You know, I'll, right. you put a lot more pressure and the anxiety that, that I think a lot of people feel starts to show up. So inc- incredibly interesting. I want to shift gears here because one of the things I wanted to talk about really quick before we end, and I know that you've been, you've been sort of on this topic lately, is this idea of language and crossing, you know, crossing barriers because there seems to be in many different spaces, language is used differently depending on whether you're in the corporate world or you're speaking on stage or, you know, you're an entrepreneur. But a lot of times people are trying to say similar things. So can you dive into this topic a little bit for us? Yeah, it's something that I'm I'm working on more and more and really trying to get data and science to frame a bit of an argument. But I mean, for the for the listeners who know Gary Vaynerchuk, he'll, you know, use profanity, he'll say hustle and passion and drive and all of these fairly strong words that are very practical in nature too. You know, if you want to uh, be more successful than most and work longer hours, work, uh, sleep less, do whatever you need to do uh, to be successful. Now, if you look at the flip side of that, uh, you'll get uh, people who are living a more, let's just say, spiritual life, who will talk about flow states, that will talk about uh, energy, vibrations, frequencies, auras, these kind of words. And, and what I've realized is that we're all saying the same thing uh, and we've got different ways to deliver it. And if that's the case, what I've come to realize is that when you know that we're all talking about essentially getting our work done more efficiently, when we're all talking about feeling less resistance to the work that we're doing, the relationship we've, the relationships that we've got or the lives that we live, that, and we can develop our own language to use it, uh, I think there's an incredible power that's developed when we make this realization. The other thing that I've started to realize, though, is that the language that we use in a world that allows us to have more outlets than we've ever had before, and by that I mean social media, namely Twitter, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, um, Snapchat, whatever it might be, actually, we start to, I think, abuse language a little bit. Like, for example, I might see a post this morning that says, you know, this coffee that I had was life changing. It was absolutely phenomenal and I'll never forget it. <laughs> uh, and, the, and the problem with that is, is that when I hear that Connor's engaged or, you know, when someone has a, a newborn child or something actually 
phenomenal happens or miraculous happens, uh, we don't have words to describe it anymore. And so I've come to realize that we need to be more careful with language and appreciate it more now than we ever have before. Because let's just put it this way. I mean, a, a zettabyte of information, meaning a thousand, 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 thousand megabytes, so the equivalent of two 150 billion DVDs was transferred over the World Wide Web in, in 2016 alone. I mean, the amount of information that we as people, as a, as a human society, have access to doubles less than every 13 months. And so there's more noise, there's more information than we've ever seen before. 400 hours of YouTube videos are uploaded every minute. And as a result, I think we have to be really careful about the language that we're using if we're going to tell a story uh, that can actually relate to and, and really hit the nail on the head of the people that we're trying to communicate with. Yeah. It, I mean, it's so interesting because it sounds, uh, I think what landed for me there in a very clear way was, and I've seen this in so many people's lives is that the language that they use or the language that they are bombarded with can either expand or compress their experience of uh, like their human experience, you know? So like that example of, oh, this coffee is life-changing. And then, you know, somebody has a, has a child. Those are like two very different things. But if we, if we allow that language to then compress our experience down, like those two things are definitely not both life-changing. Like the coffee might be good right. and it might be exceptional compared to other coffees, but it's not life-changing in the sense that it actually changed your life, you know, unless, I mean, I don't know, unless there's some like magic coffee out there that, I, that I'm not that I'm not privy to. <laughs> I'm, look, I'm looking for it too. <laughs> That's just it. I mean, I, I wrote an article uh, last year and I, I said, I called it why my lunch will never be better than great, you know? Because we keep seeing these Instagram posts about the, the succulent, delicious, you know, phenomenal, amazing carrot <laughs> that we had. And I just kind of think like, okay, I understand that it's probably pretty good. But when we apply that, like my question is, where else does this show up? And this shows up in all of our conversations when we're describing things, just so that we can have that sort of wow factor. I mean, our attention spans are shorter than they've ever been before. The, the, the ability to tell a compelling story, I think, is more and more difficult because now we're running out of words to use to describe that experience or to describe that story or emotion. And so I think we really have a responsibility now to define and understand what language resonates best with us and know that every word needs to have impact. I mean, we didn't use in, in words like today, we didn't use phenomenal, amazing, um, absolutely outrageous. I mean, you know, you talk about the rise and, and the development of man talks and you use very humble, very incremental words. And I, I would, you know, acknowledge you for that because I also think that it, that it is pretty amazing and it is pretty incredible what you're able to do, but because you're the one who's describing it and you use these humble incremental words, what that does is it allows you to bank those words for other things that you can describe, maybe even later in the conversation that warrant those words that you need to use those words for in order to differentiate them from other components of this, of this conversation. Interesting. I mean, I feel like part of this, I mean, this is so useful in, in so many ways, right? Like relationships, team dynamics, leadership spaces. Like I feel like this is so useful in so many spaces, but it's interesting because one of the things that comes to mind initially is this makes a lot of sense for why people like Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson and, you know, uh, even guys like Ben Shapiro are getting a lot of attention right now because I think that they use 
they use language in a much broader brush. You know, like Peterson said that the average person will in in any given conversation in any day life is going to use a maximum of 500 words as their sort of mm -hmm. linguistic palette. And so like, I think that there there is merit for us looking outside of our, our sort of normal conversations. But what I'm hearing you say is to be more cognizant and conscious of where we actually use some of these descriptors because they do have an impact because they're a representation of how our brain processes things. And so if we equate a coffee to a childbirth, it starts to diminish that actual sensation and, and the sort of like gravity of that situation. Is that accurate? I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. It's just that I, I want to have very real conversations with people and I want to make sure that I've got ammunition or I've got, you know, currency in the bank that I can use when we need to be talking about things that are life-changing, that are phenomenal. I don't want to say that my morning workout was either of those things because when we have a conversation that warrants those words, uh, I want to make sure that they're there in the chest still and that they carry the weight required uh, to really have a, have a just conversation. Mm, so it, so curveball, curveball question for you. How do you see this playing in on the counter side of this, right? Because you have somebody like, uh, I'll just use Trump as an example, who uses a much more simplistic, basic uh, form of communication. Like he uses the same words over and over again, and, and the words that he uses aren't aren't very broad. Is that strategic? Mm -hmm. Like, is do you feel like there's there's something about that that pulls people back into the simplicity of communication that that is is maybe something that we're craving. Like, what do you see the intention of that being? Well, I, uh, you know, I think it comes back to what you were talking about before is is that connection and that consistency. Um, and so when we're using similar repeatable language where we can connect on a on a on a deeper basis, like, for example, if you tell me uh, that we'll just go back to the coffee that your coffee was phenomenal. I mean, part of my part of me, like my eyes are going to roll back a little bit and just think like, Oh, Oh, really? So like, what else, what else is what are we going to hear today? And I think that in this world where there's so many sort of want to be entrepreneurs who are trying to do, you know, everything that everyone else is, you know, that echo chamber, again, we're seeing so many big words that are being used to describe things that aren't quite there yet. And so what I'd rather is people that were, were more vulnerable, more open using language that we can relate to and understand without sort of hyping up something that isn't quite real yet. And so if you launch, launch your book, when, when you launch your book, sorry, when you launch your book and it's, uh, and it is amazing and it is incredible, I'll call it both of those things. But, and you know, if we're talking about hyping up this amazing, incredible book, well, you know, I'd rather see it and then be able to make those comments than to keep fueling this marketing fire where we don't have enough words as wood to keep it stoked. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, <laughs> I feel like this could be like a whole hour long conversation into itself, you know, but yeah. it, it's really fascinating, right? Because once everything becomes amazing, then nothing's really inherently amazing. That's, that's exactly right? it, though, right? That's exactly it. And that's my fear when it comes to having deeper connection in our conversations is that I don't want to cry wolf on something that's not incredible because I want to save it for what it is, right? And I think that you and I can have a deeper conversation actually using more simple words because that allows us to dig deeper when we need it because the words are there for us to actually have that conversation about. Mm, yeah, I mean, it, it, it comes back to like, 
again, this is so applicable on so many levels, but it reminds me of a conversation that I had with, with a colleague once where we were talking about art and, uh, I, I was, I was pretty like livid. I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, Duchamp, but at, at some point there was an, there's an artist, I think he was back in like the fifties or sixties. I can't remember exactly when, um, or even maybe it's even before that it could be like early, early 20th century. And Duchamp took a, a urinal and cleaned it and put it into an art gallery. And I think he signed it or something like that. Mm. And, and it like, it, you know, it revolutionized the art game. And my issue with that was that right. like, when we take, when we just take everyday life and label it as art, then all of a sudden everything becomes art and then nothing inherently is art itself, right? Because yeah. then everything, like I could look at like a piece of dog shit on the ground and be like, wow, look at that piece of art. And it's like, no, that's, yeah. that's actually yeah. just dog shit. Like it doesn't belong in a fucking gallery. Like, you know, like, come, like come, there has to be some, there has to be some distinction between what is and what is an art. Otherwise we completely blur the lines and all of a sudden nothing is inherently uh, special. And it's a very like nihilist way of of looking at and living through the world. And maybe that's part of the reason why a lot of people are are starting to like feel this sense of like you were talking about, they have more purpose, they have more meaning, they have more of almost everything, and yet they have less mm -hmm. sense of happiness. And so yeah, I mm -hmm. mean that just it just totally brought that that back for me. Well, I mean, that's perfect. I mean, it's funny you said that uh, one of your, your previous guests, I mean, my, my well, even Tim Ferriss, really, my goal is to take what we as people think are best practices, challenge them enough that, that the individual that I'm speaking with can come up with an alternate solution to what we've been doing, what we've been thinking has been right for so long. I'm not really the how to or do this kind of guy, because again, I think every experience is so individual that I then end up <laughs> ill-advising everyone because that's simply what works for me. But then again, if we can understand that maybe the way that we use our words today isn't as effective as it, as we think it is based on some whatever social or societal construct it is, that if we can come up to our own conclusions as to how we can use our words most effectively, as long as we're intentional, introspective, and thinking what works best for us, I don't think any of us can do any wrong. Yeah, and I, I feel like this is so cru uh, crucial for things like validation, you know, and appreciation, especially in the workplace or in relationships or, or with our, our colleagues, uh, and feedback, you know, because if 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 we speak in absolutes and and that's really in some some way what we're talking about when we speak in absolutes all the time it starts to have this sort of like flattening effect that we've kind of been talking about. So listen, man, this has been a yeah. really great conversation. I feel like we could definitely go on on this topic and, and spir spiral out of control until, you know, a whole bunch of different areas, but, um, yeah. Straight into yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so tell me about just, just before we finish off, what's one thing that you're really looking forward to in 2018 that, that maybe people could uh, check out? Uh, 2018 is, is an incredibly exciting year so far on the speaking, on the consulting and the writing side of things. Um, I think, well, today, I, I'm not sure when we're launching, but by the time launch day, 
uh, rethink work will be one year old. I think we've ended up so, selling about 3,500 copies now. It's available still on, on Amazon.ca uh, up here in Canada, uh, in Indigo chapters, calls across the country in the odd airport bookstore. Uh, that's, that's, I, I'm excited on building on that. And I, I'm excited uh, on a personal level to be getting a half iron man under my belt with some of my best friends. I found that the training is, is, is just as fun or if not more fun than the race itself, at least that's what I'm anticipating. And the ability to realize that, you know what, the path that I'm on is right for me and perhaps me only. And so I don't need to storytell and to you know self-promote and say that it's so great because uh, it might just be great for me and that's okay. And if I can understand what happiness looks like internally and I can focus on that and try and develop it, try and refine it and try to make sure that I'm always chasing something that is uh, a little bit better than today while still realizing the happiness and the gratitude that I've got for, for whatever today is that I think it'll be, it'll be better off. So 2018 is a year again, as it always will be of refinement, of fine tuning, of tweaking, and realizing that perhaps technology isn't all it's cracked up to be in many cases, and that I can have deeper, more meaningful relationships along the way if I focus to someone. Nice. I love that, man. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I had this you know, huge value, I think, for, uh, for, for everybody out there that, that tuned into this episode. And for everybody that's out there listening, don't forget to man it forward. Share this podcast episode with somebody that you think would love to listen to it. Uh, check out Eric. Uh, you can go to his website. It's Eric Termundi, and it's T-E-R-M-U-E-N-D-E dot com. Uh, we'll, have, we'll have a link for that. I just want to spell that out for everybody. Um, but uh, we'll have a link for that in the show notes. Uh, again, uh, you know, go ahead, check us out on Apple Music, uh, Apple Podcasts, and subscribe, leave a review. It goes a long way to get us into the ears and onto the phones of other people. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.